Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. How to control climate-changing emissions. Everyone agrees, Democrats, Republicans, the EPA that a legislative solution would be superior to a regulatory one. But Congress has been unable to act. Coming up, Congress considers blocking the EPA's ability to limit greenhouse gases. Also, the bottom line on nuclear power. If you take economics seriously, then nuclear falls at the first hurdle, and you don't need to argue about safety or vulnerability to terrorism or proliferation. And how safe are our aging reactors? Now that this thing has happened in Japan, and it's the exact same Mark I reactor, you know, with the exact same spent fuel pool sitting seven stories above the ground. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. President Obama has pledged to cut climate-changing gas emissions. The Supreme Court says the EPA has the authority to do just that. But Congress has other ideas. And there are competing proposals on Capitol Hill that could stop the EPA in its tracks. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj reports from Washington. When it comes to fighting global warming, EPA's worst enemy may not be the Republicans who are trying to kill its plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions, but a West Virginia Democrat who's been telling coal country to get real on climate change. I have been saying to the West Virginia Coal Association, which for the most part doesn't believe in climate science, that that's wrong. The science is unequivocally true and that there is a price to carbon in their future. In their future, but not right now. Senator Jay Rockefeller wants to stop the EPA from regulating global warming emissions for two years. He opposes a similar Republican proposal to permanently cancel the EPA's climate change authority under the Clean Air Act and stands a better chance of finding support for his bill in the Democratic majority Senate. Rockefeller has been telling his colleagues that a two-year delay will give Congress time to legislate a solution to climate change. That's what my amendment, the two-year amendment, and then only two years, that's what it's meant to give us the time to do. And sensibly, that's what we ought to be doing if people cared about having an energy policy. Those are strong words, but they're not backed up by his actions. Eric Pika is president of the environmental group Friends of the Earth. He says Rockefeller's amendment isn't any more constructive than the Republican plan to halt EPA's power. Our government has a right to protect our citizens from abusive corporations. Essentially what all these bills do is they grant these corporate polluters the right to abuse our kids' lungs, to pollute our air, and to degrade our environment. But Republicans do see a big difference between delaying the EPA's climate authority and taking it away forever. Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma is selling the permanent ban he's co-sponsoring in the Senate and downplaying the impact of Rockefeller's bill. The reason that would not work, this just kicks the can down the road for two more years. We've got to address this thing. And right now we have an administration that's doing all they can to do away with fossil fuels. 
Inhofe, a global warming denier, has partnered up with Republican Fred Upton on the House side, where a Republican majority makes passage of their legislation likely. But in the Senate, their effort competes with Rockefeller's proposal and could take Republican support away from the two-year delay. Paul Bledsoe, a senior advisor to the Bipartisan Policy Center, says even if Rockefeller's two-year delay passes, Congress probably won't tackle climate change in the next two years. Even Rockefeller's more limited approach to climate change, funding research to clean up coal, would be a stretch. Any bill that sought to invest in technologies to reduce coal emissions is going to be expensive. In the current budgetary environment, that money just isn't available. The irony here is that climate legislation from the last Congress raised the revenue to pay for new technologies. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid has agreed to allow both proposals to be voted on as amendments to a small business jobs bill. White House officials in the past have said that the president would veto efforts to check the EPA's power, but they've stayed quiet on what he would do if it comes with jobs legislation. Bledsoe used to work on climate change in the Clinton White House. Vetoes. On some issues, you were certain what you were going to do no matter what. On other issues, context matters a lot. What's the underlying statute? Is it a must-pass defense appropriations bill? Then it becomes more difficult to veto. So it strikes me that this may be one of those where context matters most. Job creation is a top priority for voters, and much of the debate over the EPA's global warming regulations has been framed as economic, with Republicans blaming EPA climate oversight for high gas prices and continued unemployment. EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson has been pushing back against those attacks, citing agency data that says for every dollar spent on environmental regulation, there's a $40 benefit for the country. At an event last year celebrating the anniversary of the Clean Air Act, she said the 40-year-old law has always drawn doomsayers, and with climate change, it's no different. Of course, there have been claims about job-killing regulations, despite the fact that it creates a virtuous cycle in which clean air standards spark new technology, serving our fundamental belief that we can create jobs and opportunity without burdening our citizens with the effects of pollution. But while the whole country and whole planet might benefit from lower emissions, regions with industries heavily dependent on fossil fuels will face a more difficult transition as the EPA gets tough on global warming polluters. And votes on whether and how much to weaken the EPA's climate authority will likely fall not just on ideological lines, but regional ones. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington. There are dangerously high radiation levels in water leaking from reactor number three at Japan's Fukushima power plant. At our deadline, operators still struggling to gain control of the reactor fear the core might be breached. Prime Minister Khan calls the situation grave and unpredictable, and officials are urging those within 19 miles of the nuclear power plant to leave voluntarily and avoid eating many kinds of green vegetables. To say the least, the nuclear disaster in Japan has refocused attention on the future of the atom as a source of energy. But the threat of global climate change has led even some diehard environmentalists to reconsider and embrace nuclear power. But not Amory Lovins. He's chairman and chief scientist of Rocky Mountain Institute in Snowmass, Colorado. Amory Lovins, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. 
So is it possible that we can meet our carbon reduction targets without nuclear power? Of course, not only that, but we could do so more effectively and more cheaply. It is quite true that if a nuclear plant displaces a coal plant, that would reduce carbon emissions. But if you spent the same money on efficiency, renewables, and combined heat and power, you would reduce the carbon emissions by about 2 to 10 times more and 20 to 40 times faster. So nuclear is such a slow and costly climate solution, it actually reduces and retards climate protection compared with a best buys first approach. But when you say it's slow, isn't it people like you that are holding up the process with lawsuits and holding up the process of licensing nuclear power plants? Not in the least. Uh, I know the industry likes to blame environmental groups, of which, by the way, we are not one, for holding up licensing. But they've been writing the rules for several decades. New nuclear plants in this country are offered subsidies that now rival or exceed their total construction cost. And yet, even though that's been true since 2005, three years before the financial crash, they've been unable to raise a penny of private capital simply because the cost and risk are unfinanceable. Wall Street will not invest in them. It's a utterly unfinanceable technology, and it's obvious why. It's grossly uncompetitive. But can renewables, can wind, for example, produce enough energy, enough density, to replace a nuclear power plant, which is huge and usually powerful? And plus, you know, the, the, and plus the wind doesn't blow on calm days. Yeah, well, that's two separate points. The first one, uh, I'm afraid the industry got it backwards. Actually, if you properly do the math and count the whole nuclear fuel cycle, not just the power plant, not just the core of the reactor, but the exclusion zone, the uranium mining, and so on, it turns out that wind power uh, uses hundreds or thousands of times less land per kilowatt hour than nuclear does. Even solar photovoltaics are about equal to or slightly better than nuclear in that respect. As for the wind not blowing and the sun not shining all the time, that's true. And every kind of power plant can fail. They differ, however, in how much fails at once, for how long, how often, and for what reasons, and how predictably. You can predict pretty well when wind or solar will not work. But you cannot predict when a nuclear plant will fail. They break without warning about 3 to 5% of the time. Big coal nuclear plants are down about 10 or 12% of the time. And for that reason, we've designed grids for over a century to cope with that kind of intermittence that every power plant suffers from. So you don't depend on any single plant. You depend on the whole grid. So it turns out if you diversify renewables by type, so they're not all affected by weather the same way, you diversify them by location so they don't all see the same weather at the same time, and you integrate them with the resources on the grid, both power plants and ways to save or shift electric use, then you can have a largely or wholly renewable electric supply system at very reasonable cost with greater reliability and resilience than we have right now. I find it a little bit ironic. I see these pictures from Japan, and I and I think, you know, if they had put a, a wind turbine on top of the nuclear complex there, the plant might have had power and would still be running. Actually, the uh, wind machines in the vicinity were not affected by the earthquake and tsunami, and the utilities have been calling for them to crank out every bit of juice they can to help keep the grid up. Look, here's a quick summary of what's going on with nuclear in the world. At the end of 2010... There were 66 nuclear units officially listed as under construction worldwide. 
you look a little closer, you find a dozen of them have been listed as under construction for over 20 years. 45 of them have no official startup date. Half of them are late. All 66 of them are in centrally planned power systems. Not a single one of them is a free market purchase. And since 2007, nuclear growth has added less electricity to our supply each year than even the costliest renewable solar power. It'll probably never catch up. But they're having rolling blackouts in Japan right now because they don't have the nuclear power plant online. Of course, if you lose a lot of capacity, you can be short, and they were already a bit short. But I would actually view that as a drawback of nuclear power in two respects. First, to make it cheap, they try to put a bunch of plants in one place, which was always a bad idea, because if something goes seriously wrong with one plant, you can't even get in to fix the others and keep them from developing serious problems. Second, nuclear plants are shut down abruptly when there's a loss of grid connection, like in the tsunami. And the trouble with that is it it is then very hard to restart the plant. So in 2003, we had a big blackout in the northeastern U.S. Nine plants were running perfectly until the blackout, and then they went to zero. And it took two weeks to get them all back up. So they're like an anti-peaker. They're guaranteed unavailable when you most need them. Renewables don't have that problem. Amory Lovins is the chairman and chief scientist of Rocky Mountain Institute in Snowmass, Colorado. Well, Mr. Lovins, thank you so very much. You're welcome. Just ahead, an old nuclear power plant gets a new lease on life. Maybe. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Imagine driving around in a car made in 1980. Well, the average nuclear power plant in the United States is 31 years old. At age 40, a nuclear plant must be relicensed by the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and so far, the NRC has never turned down a renewal. In fact, just recently, it approved a 20-year extension for Vermont Yankee. In most states, that would be a done deal, but in Vermont, the legislature and governor think they have the power to shut the aging reactor down. And other states with old nuclear plants are watching. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports from the Green Mountain State. There was a lot of gray hair on the heads bobbing to music at the latest meeting of anti-nuclear activists in Brattleboro, Vermont. The activists have aged along with their target, Intergy Corporation's Vermont Yankee Nuclear Station, just seven miles away, turns 39 this year. Many in this crowd have been working decades to shut it down. On this snowy March night, they started a countdown, one year until the power company's license to operate expires. Close this aging reactor. The anti-nuclear movement here is newly energized by two events. One in the state Senate, which voted overwhelmingly last year to deny Vermont Yankee permission it needs under state law to continue operation. The unfolding crisis at the Fukushima power plant is also on people's minds. Bob Beatty of the group Safe and Green says no one expects a tsunami here on the banks of the Connecticut River. But they do worry that a flood, terror attack, or simple human error might expose weaknesses that the Japanese and Vermont reactors share. Now that this thing has happened in Japan, and it's the exact same Mark I reactor, you know, with the exact same spent fuel pool sitting seven stories above the ground, the, the parallels are just so striking, and they're unavoidable. 
The person who's done the most to make Vermont Yankees' problems public was once an executive in a nuclear energy company. Arnie Gunderson was fired in the 1990s for raising safety concerns. He's been a nuclear watchdog ever since, and Vermont's government hired him to take a close look at Vermont Yankee. Gunderson says the spent fuel pool is of particular concern. As in the Japanese reactors, Vermont Yankee's 40-foot-long, 40-foot-deep pool holds the fuel assemblies that come out of the reactor. The difference is Vermont's waste has been piling up longer. There's probably about 30 years' worth of nuclear fuel still up there on the roof of the building. So Vermont has about three times more nuclear fuel on its top floor than Fukushima did. Gunderson says incidents at the plant lead him to think it's beginning to show its age. Over the last six years or so, Vermont Yankee had a a major fire. And then two years later, they had the cooling towers collapse. And then two years after that, they had the tritium leak. So we had three really significant mechanical problems. Gunderson says the tritium leak also undermined public confidence in the plant's management. He was on a state-appointed review panel that had asked if there were pipes under the plant that carry any radioactive products. We were told there were no underground pipes. I discovered after the fact that, oh my God, there really are underground pipes. And of course, Entergy continued to deny that. Well, three months after that, uh, an underground pipe broke and, uh, and leaked not just tritium, but cesium and strontium and manganese and cobalt-60 into the ground in the plant. Vermont Yankee is on a tree-lined plot between Highway 142 and the river in the town of Vernon. New Hampshire is just across the river. The Massachusetts line is a few miles to the south. Company spokesperson Larry Smith says an event akin to the Japanese crisis could not happen here. He points out the plant's backup power and cooling systems and safety design. It's built to withstand a 6.0 earthquake and stands higher than the crest of the highest recorded flood. So there's defense in depth and there's redundant systems. You can never say never, um, but we have the capabilities, we feel, just to certainly shut the plant down safely and uh, to always protect public health and safety. Tell me about safety incidents that you've had at, uh, at Vermont Yankee. What, what's gone wrong here? We've had no safety incidents at Vermont Yankee. Maybe this is a matter of semantics, but there was a collapse of a cooling tower, correct? That's right, and that's industrial safety, and that happened in 2007. Put it in perspective, you're talking about a 20-foot section of a 460-foot tower. That's what collapsed. Uh, There was a a transformer fire? In 2004, a transformer was not on fire. It was the uh, bus duct that was on top of it. Um, But that can happen at any power plant. Also, the... uh manner in which the information has come to light has led some people to express to me a lack of confidence that uh, they're getting open communication. For example, how did the tritium leak? How did that come to light? It came to light because the industry in 2007 undertook a voluntary groundwater protection program and put in monitoring wells. We identified tritium And the same day, we told the NRC and we told the state of Vermont, so I don't know what you mean by not being transparent or or not uh, being straightforward. Uh, There was a 
denial that the the pipe system existed, and uh, only after uh, persistence by a watchdog did you, did your company admit, oh yes, there's a pipe system, and oh by the way, it's leaking. Well, I can tell you is we we did a lousy job of providing testimony. Uh, to the Vermont Public Service Board on the extent of our pipes. We have a lot of support in the state of Vermont. We certainly have a lot of support from this community, the host community, for the continued operation of Vermont Yankee and this station. A walk around the neighborhood shows Smith is right about that. Some residents in Vernon have yard signs showing support. There's no sense of alarm, even just across the street from the plant at Vernon Elementary. Mark Spino is the school's principal. We're a small town, we have a school, we have a nuclear power plant. No, it's not that odd. It's part of the community. I'm, I'm certainly comfortable, or I wouldn't be here. Supporters say the plant's 650 megawatts supply one-third of the state's power, and they add its carbon-free power. Vermont seems split on its lone nuclear power plant. For example, voters last year elected a lieutenant governor who voted to keep Vermont Yankee going, and a governor who wants to shut it down. Democrat Peter Shumlin is governor. I just feel very strongly that when you have an aging, tired nuclear power plant run by a company that you can't trust, uh, you know, you got to stop and breathe for a minute and say, hey, you know, how much sense does this make? Governor Shumlin is confident that the state's position will withstand a legal challenge from Entergy, and he offered a challenge of his own to other states that have aging nuclear reactors. It's clear that the federal policy is run them as long as you possibly can and hope, keep your fingers crossed, that Japan doesn't happen in America. I personally think that that is a gamble that's likely to fail. And I would encourage other states to take matters into their own hands and control their own destiny. There are indications other states might do just that. Intergy-owned reactors in Massachusetts and New York will need license renewals within the next two years. Lawmakers and the two states' attorneys general have asked the NRC to take a closer look at how those plants operate and store spent fuel. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Vernon, Vermont. The reactor at Vermont Yankee is just one of 23 GE Mark I's still operating in the United States. They're the same model as five of the six reactors at Japan's ill-fated Fukushima Daiichi plant. Dale Breidenbaugh knows the GE Mark I reactor very well. Back in the 1970s, he and two other senior GE nuclear engineers quit their jobs and became whistleblowers. Breidenbaugh says the GE-3, as they were called, tried to warn company officials that the Mark I containment shell had serious design flaws. There was a, a lot of uncertainty about whether the Mark I containment would be able to withstand uh, a major accident uh, that they should have been designed to withstand. Well, when you told your bosses at GE that there was a problem, what did they say? Well, my bosses at GE said, yeah, we know there's a problem. Uh, we have to do something about it, and we're, that's what we're doing. And in fact, I was the guy that they assigned to be the project manager directing this reanalysis program. But I was concerned that there should uh, perhaps have been a, a respite while we completed the analysis, and my bosses basically said, well, we can't afford to do that. That would be like a massive recall, and it would be very detrimental to the marketing program of GE. When you say respite, you wanted them to close these plants down while you did the analysis. Well, yes, I would have been much more satisfied if they had been closed down to do the analysis, yes. And you and two other GE engineers quit. That's right. 
Is there a fundamental flaw that existed back then that's still something we have to deal with? Is this generic to the design, or can they be fixed? Well, it's really hard to say, and it's, it's kind of a judgment call. There's probably not a specific design flaw that exists there, but the configuration of the Mark I plant certainly, in my opinion, leaves it a little more vulnerable to such uh, significant events as the earthquake or the tsunami that happened at Fukushima. And uh, I think they have a basic design weakness, if you will, to withstand those kind of events. Well, Mr. Breidenbaugh, thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Former GE nuclear engineer Dale Breidenbaugh. You can hear more of the interview at our website, LOE.org. Earlier this month, the Greek freighter Oliva, carrying a hole full of soybeans, was heading from Brazil to the Philippines. Suddenly, just before dawn, disaster struck. The cargo ship hit a rock and began taking on water. The captain issued a mayday. Close to the sinking ship was the Prince Albert II, a luxury liner carrying eco-tourists. Ship and crew helped save those still aboard the doomed Oliva. On the Prince Albert, as guest ecologist, was David Guggenheim, also known as the Ocean Doctor. Dr. Guggenheim recorded the drama and the ecological disaster that followed. We reached him by sat phone as the Prince Albert was leaving the island where the freighter ran aground in this inaccessible part of the South Atlantic. In fact, uh, Tristan da Cunha is considered the most remote inhabited island in the world. So we were pretty much in the middle of nowhere. These islands are unique. They harbor some of the most magnificent bird life. It's the second highest concentration of seabirds in the world. And talk about the most remote possible place to run your ship aground. It's still a great mystery of how this could have possibly happened. We can see the huge hole on the side of the ship just now. As it happened, the crew aboard the Prince Albert II was trained exactly for this type of rescue. Teams set off an inflatable Zodiacs to inspect the ill-fated freighter. Right above the rocks, there's a massive hole. And our rescue team came back, and people were feeling the effects of just uh, being out there for an hour or two with, uh, with oil around. The Oliva was hemorrhaging oil. On board, 300,000 gallons of heavy marine fuel enough for a voyage halfway around the world. It was all hands on deck, not a moment to lose. Robin West, the head of the expedition team, is right here, and he really played the lead role in the, in the rescue, and the rest of us watched in awe from the ship. And I'll put Robin on to talk to you about that. Hello? Hi, Robin. It's Bruce in, in Boston with Living on Earth. Yes. Hi, Bruce. And how are you? I'm well, but tell me about this rescue. You wound up saving how many uh, of the crew members of this uh, cargo ship? Uh, ten. The ship itself was pretty much very close to the shoreline. Uh, a rock had punched a hole through the side of the ship, and it was rolling and moving on that rock. 
And the big fear was that the ship was going to tear into two and break up quite quickly. So we had a small window of opportunity to try and get them off the ship. We went ahead and launched three of our Zodiacs to grab guys and bring them into the boat. And uh, we, we, in fact, managed to do it. Thank you very much. Understood everybody is in Zodiacs now, right? Yes, that's correct. Thank you very, very much, Captain. You must also thank your team there. Very, very well done, Alain. Thank you. We will do, we will do so, of course. Thank you. Thank you. The, the ship sank, didn't it? Uh, that's correct. Eight hours later, two o'clock in the morning, it tore into two pieces. On the side closest to where the shore side was, a lot of the oil has spilled out and was trapped in that area. It's like uh, uh, heavy fuel, oil, black, and it smells heavily. Try to avoid so nobody gets it in their eyes because then... What a mess. It is a very big mess. There's obviously a very, very large concern that uh, that heavy diesel and that oil will be there for a very, very long time. Well, Robin West, great job. Nice going. Can I speak to Dr. Guggenheim again? Yes, I'll pass him on to you. Thank you very much, Bruce. Hello. Boy, Dr. Guggenheim, what a high adventure on the high seas. Well, it it is. This has been, um, I think, the expedition of my life. And unfortunately, I mean, as great of an event that that was, uh, there wasn't a lot of time to celebrate because we realized there was much more oil in the water than... We had um, thought there was the last time we had seen the ship. And when I went ashore, finally, at Tristan de Cunha, two days later, we had to wait for the weather to clear. I met with the local head of the Department of Conservation, a man named Trevor Glass, who told me that the oil had since enveloped the island. You said that oil is now all the way around yeah. Nightingale Island? Well, it's the whole way around Nightingale Island, and you can smell it. The seals, the boys say, the seals are acting very strange. Some is full of oil when they come up also. And you said half of the, uh, or your team said half of the penguins? Half of the penguins was coming up. It's uh, full of oil. I have the photos, but it's totally black. You know, if you had to pick the worst place to spill this oil, it really it really demonstrates that, you know, you don't need a super tanker or even a small oil tanker to create an environmental catastrophe. Some of these birds are very, very rare. That's exactly right. In fact, the um, spectacled petrel is found only on the neighboring inaccessible island, and we found out that oil had reached inaccessible island. And the northern rockhopper penguin, half of the population is found right here in the Tristan Island group. There's also another bird that's only found in this area. It's only 50 nesting pairs, which is called the Tristan bunting, highly endangered. And uh, again, you know, very very vulnerable to this sort of spill. So what happens now to this remote, um, ecologically unique area? What, what can be done? Can anything be done? Well, we're doing what we can, and we just we can only hope that it's within enough time. There's no airstrip, so logistics are terrible. They are still very inadequately provisioned for an operation of this magnitude. With time being of the essence, we're very concerned that help is too far away to reach them in time. I've seen some of the photos of the uh, penguins covered in petroleum. It's really heartbreaking, i, I got to tell you. 
Yeah, it's it's horrible. And, you know, the problem is also it's not enough to clean them externally because they are ingesting this stuff internally. And once they get coated, they start to preen and they can get very sick. It's highly toxic. The passengers aboard the Silver Seas Prince Albert II, what are they thinking? I think it opened people's eyes to what can happen and just how vulnerable some of these natural areas really are. It's also brought out the best in everybody. People are asking, how can we help? We even had a suggestion, let's just take the the penguins aboard uh, the Prince Albert II and bring them back to rehabilitate them. Um, I mean, I, for one, would be honored to have penguins living in my, uh, in my bathtub, but, you know, that's just not practical. This ship isn't set up for that sort of specialized care. We don't have the right equipment. We don't have the right materials. But the spirit was there, and it's very, very admirable. So it's something they'll never forget. Well, Dr. David Guggenheim, thank you so very much. I really appreciate it, and um, good luck. Thank you so much, and, and thanks for paying attention to this tiny little speck of, uh, of the planet, because it's, a, it's an important one. David Guggenheim, a.k.a. The Ocean Doctor, speaking to us by sat phone from aboard the Prince Albert II. The luxury eco-ship helped save sailors and witnessed an environmental disaster in the South Atlantic. For incredible photos, go to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, paying a visit to people who live on top of the world. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. There's one place on Earth where all roads lead south. Not that there are many roads within the Arctic Circle. Yet author Sarah Wheeler took a trip there and chronicles her journey in her new book, The Magnetic North, Notes from the Arctic Circle. Wheeler traveled in every country with territory at the top of the world and talked with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood about her adventures. I think one of the most moving parts of your book is about the indigenous people who live there. You wrote, uh, every nation devastates native cultures, even if it doesn't actually kill everyone off. The Russians did it with bureaucracy, Americans with money, Canadians with kindness. Swedes and Finns did it with chainsaws that chopped down forests, and everybody did it with booze and syphilis. Yeah, it's a grim picture. I wonder if you'd uh, start this discussion at the beginning of your trip and talk about what you found in Russia. There's 27 different indigenous groups in polar Russia alone. Most of them traditionally reindeer hunters, some marine mammal hunters. Once the Sovietization began, there's no place for nomads. So the Soviets just sent people up there to bring those people, those natives, into submission, which meant bringing them into the cash economy and making them sedentary. Well, it's all very well bringing people into a cash economy, but how are they going to earn their cash? So as this thing has played itself out with no jobs, 
no employment, nothing to do, no meaning, then you can see a big vacuum is created. And into that has moved alcohol and drugs. But you see a lot of that today. I, I bet in every, every one of the polar countries you went to, you saw it. Even in a place that is as enlightened and socially conscious as, say, Denmark in, in Greenland. Yes. I mean, let's take the case of Canada, the whole dietary issue. Canadians have tied themselves into knots about, first of all, in the bad old days, telling people, eat, or stop eating all of that rubbish. You've got to eat, you know, nice things like us, burgers and chips and pizzas and all the rest of it and get all our health problems. And then the more enlightened times, uh, health officials went back up and said, no, we've got all that wrong. It's good to eat well and more us if you're an indigenous person. Then the zeitgeist changed again. Everyone said, we need to save the whale. So the health officials went back up and said, you know, we said it wasn't okay. Then we said it was. Well, it's not again. And then it goes, so it goes. And don't forget the bit about the PCBs. The PCBs is possibly the most horrific of all the horrific Arctic toxin stories. PCBs were banned a long time ago in all the developed countries. They're really, really ghastly things that used to be in flame retardants and so on. Talking about the 70s, they were banned. But they got into the marine food chain and through the processes of bioaccumulation and biomagnification, as they move up through the food chain, they get bigger and more powerful and more ghastly. So scientists are finding, and there's proper data on this, uh, are finding in polar bear cubs an incredibly high level of PCP contamination at birth. And of course the polar peoples, who still eat the country food as they call it, become the most contaminated of all. So the Canadians have had to really try and help their indigenous peoples learn not to breastfeed. It's an example of the Arctic paradox by which the people who live furthest away from contaminants are the ones most affected by them. It's a little bit heavy now, this discussion, uh, (laughs) Sarah Wheeler. Let's talk about how indigenous folks have changed their habits in the northern parts of Scandinavia. We write about, you know, ancient reindeer here herding and this present-day reindeer herding. Yeah, I had a fantastic time reindeer herding with the Sami, the Laps, um, in northern Sweden, a long way north of the Arctic Circle, wonderful people. And what they do is they bring the reindeer down from the mountain pastures at the end of summer and take them back up at the end of winter. And so twice a year, and it all happens in one day, you have these enormous rivers of reindeer pounding, the hooves pounding on the ice and being driven by these laps, who of course are tremendously skilled at it. They do use snowmobiles, it's a marvellous combination of traditional and technological and they castrate some of the reindeer and they no longer do that with their teeth they now do it with um that's the, that was the traditional way how did they use to castrate? the traditional way of course was the teeth because one didn't have metal tools and so on and the male uh, sami herder would castrate his reindeer those would be the ones that were they were keeping to be beasts of burden so all those are castrated then as now anyway so i was there and I just had a baby, so I had my baby with, with me doing all the things that the I watched the lap women do with their babies. I uh, became a world expert at nursing at minus 30. Um, how, do, how do you do that? Do you have any advice for anyone who w- would want to try I do, it? yeah. If you're thinking of doing that, you stuff tinfoil down your shirt because it reflects the light, the heat back. Handy tip of the day. I wonder if you could read from that part of the book. Certainly, yeah. This is um, the part where my baby son, Reggie, and I went to have supper in a traditional Sami lavu, which is a sort of wigwam made of skins. 
When Reggie and I arrived for the evening, a pair of draft reindeer were scooping snow outside with their front hooves, burying their noses into the mushy ground beneath and whistling softly as they exhaled. Inside, we lounged on pelts as Peacher, that was my host, Peacher's herding assistant, Anders, rolled out flatbread and the fire hissed to life, catching first on resin in the birch bark, then crackling over pine and juniper. Peacher had cooked up a malaise, the Sami meal prepared at slaughter time, and it bubbled with ominously pungent eruptations in a cauldron lashed to a lateral rod between tent poles. A malaise consists of almost every part of a reindeer boiled in the same pot, liver, tongue, bone and steak with its hump of canary yellow fat. Even the hooves are boiled, Peacher announced, handing me a green birch skewer with which to poke marrow from bone. We ate the dish with lingonberry relish, black pudding and a patty made with blood and oatmeal. Breastfeeding makes one hungry enough for anything, except perhaps boiled hoof, though fortunately one was not called upon to put that to the test. I could see the flickering ion stream of the northern lights through the roof opening. Anders offered a chunk of cooked reindeer fat on a plate. For the baby, he said. He's not weaned yet, I said. I know, he said. That's what we wean them with. I had a great time with those guys. They were so friendly and so sort of um, dignified in the way that they um, were integrating. I saw a lot of transition, you know. You can't look at polar peoples and sort of go back to some idyllic age of a bloke sitting over a uh, hole in the ice with his fishing rod, you know. We're never going to go back there. And it's all a process of transition. I mean, in Nuuk, the capital of Greenland, I saw pinned on a washing line some seal ribs curing to dry next to a little toddler's Batman suit. And that image, to me, exemplified the transition of the polar regions. Sarah Wheeler's book is called The Magnetic North, Notes from the Arctic Circle. Thanks for taking us on your travel, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Author Sarah Wheeler spoke with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwin. The cult classic Godzilla was made at the dawn of the atomic age. Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Godzilla was born of an atomic blast. The movie is a cautionary story from the nation where nuclear weapons were first used. Now let's have it, Steve. What about this monster story of yours? Well, it's big and terrible. Now, fast forward to Japan in March 2011. Another nuclear character makes the scene. He's Nuclear Boy, born of the crisis at the Fukushima power plant. Nuclear Boy stars in an animated video that's gone viral. He's a little boy with a stomachache. He represents a sick nuclear power plant. When Nuclear Boy passes gas, he's emitting radiation. And doctors worry he might poop, which would be a meltdown. The video has English subtitles, which is good because I don't speak Japanese. Nor does my guest John Carroll. John Carroll is a professor of mass communication at Boston University. We asked him to help analyze some films from the golden era of atomic energy and nuclear boy. When I first saw this, I thought, this is really a concept with a capital K. But when you put it in in context of Japanese society, it actually makes a little bit more sense. And when you put it in the context of playing it for kids, um, then it does a pretty good job of 
describing what's actually going on there. I mean, the language that they use is language that, on the surface anyway, downplays the danger. You know, talks about ruining your day, smelling up the neighborhood, uh, that kind of thing. But, um, and the whole bowel movement thing is something that uh, I think is pretty foreign to, um, to the American public. But I think that it's something that kids can identify with, kids can understand. And I think that it, uh, that it at least explains what's happening in general terms so they have some kind of orientation. Well, let's play a little bit more of Nuclear Boy. It, it, basically, what they're saying is the Three Mile Island was an incident where there was a lot of gas was being passed, and Chernobyl Boy had diarrhea. Kind of an upbeat message there, John. Uh, yeah, it's it's basically saying this. Whatever happens, it's not going to be as bad as Chernobyl. So um, so that's encouraging to uh, to everybody. I think that that this is yeah, it's it's weird until you start to think back in terms of what we had back in the fifties, for instance. We had Bert the Turtle in a duck and cover uh, uh, video, which uh, which basically said what to do when the atom bomb falls is to duck and cover and try and get under a table. So that was even more ridiculous than what we have uh, here with Nuclear Boys. But, you know, kids back in the 50s were getting a heavy dose of information uh, at the dawn of the nuclear era. I want you to listen to this one. It's a familiar tune. When you wish upon a star, so they have the wonderful world of Disney signature tune. And, and what you've got here is a way to try to give kids uh, some orientation, a way to give them a comfort level. They can relate it to Walt Disney. The atom is our future. It is a subject... Everyone wants to understand. So we felt it was the most important topic for a Tomorrowland program. Yeah, Walt Disney was a big proponent of uh, nuclear power. I think he was a big proponent of the future in general. That was The future was good for business for him. We made plans to build an exhibit at Disneyland that will show you atomic energy in action. Well, let's call it manipulation or, or propaganda, I guess, right? You could call it propaganda to some degree. I mean, it's not that it was entirely untrue. It's just that there was this sort of techno-optimism that they evoked all the time. It puts things in a context that downplays the potential dangers and plays up the potential benefits of atomic energy. Hey, John, did you ever see Ready Kilowatt? That was the uh, industry's um, commercial for uh, promoting nuclear power way back when. I wash and dry your clothes, play your radios, I can heat your coffee. I love Ready Kilowatt. I am always there with lots of power to spare because I'm Ready Kilowatt. He was just the kind of guy that was an, an excellent mascot, and I can say he was always welcome in our home. Well, this was a film from the 50s by the Armed Forces Special Weapons Project. And basically, it was kind of downplaying the, the medical concerns people had about radiation exposure. The estimated dose needed to bring about permanent sterility exceeds the lethal dose. So obviously, sterility by radiation would be just incidental, a matter a dead man wouldn't worry about. 
That's very comforting, isn't it? Don't worry, you'll be dead way before you're sterile. Ah, the tone of this video is very odd. It's very sort of insidery. It's very jokey. Um, I mean, they say at one point the best protection against atomic explosions is to be somewhere else when they happen. Um, you know, that's uh, setting the bar pretty low there. The United States isn't alone in producing these kinds of films by a long stretch. I want you to listen to this. I, I know you don't speak Russian, but you don't need to to know what it's saying, I think, to get the message. This is from 1977, and it takes place in Ukraine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There, I'm picking up the phone and calling Charlie Schwab and saying, you know, buy me some uh, f- some futures in Chernobyl. I mean, uh, you know, that that kind of thing is how all these enterprises start out. They always start out with this optimism, with this sort of sunny side up view of what's going to happen. Um, and sometimes they play out, and sometimes they don't. I'm sure Three Mile Island had a nice little groundbreaking too. John, what were we thinking back then? Were we more gullible? Were we more naive? I think we were more trusting, for one thing. I, I think there was a, there was a trust in the uh, in the government, in particular, in, in major institutions uh, that uh, that we don't have now. There wasn't that much competition back then, so they could essentially establish a narrative that would take hold because there was no counter narrative that was being put forward. If you put some of this stuff out now, what you would have is Greenpeace all over them. You would have the blogs critiquing them. You would have parody videos on YouTube. I mean, what you had back then was it, it was much easier easier to go out and establish a context and to convince people to see things from a particular perspective because of the way the media landscape was constructed. What do you think would be an effective way of talking about nuclear energy today? There are a couple of ways. I mean, I think that the, one of the interesting things about Nuclear Boy over in Japan was that it was crowdsourced, that it was something that didn't come from uh, some authority figure. It was something that came from the people and to solve a particular problem. And I think if you had more of that sense, more of that, uh, that sense of things coming up from the bottom rather than coming down from the top, uh, you could establish some kind of uh, credibility. But I think that that's the way to go, is to create a conversation and try to go from there rather than this sort of authoritarian voice that no longer has the credibility, no longer has the authority, and no longer has the trust of a large part of the American public. Well, John, it's always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Bruce. John Carroll is a professor of mass communication at Boston University. His blog is campaignoutsider.com. Remember, just plug in. I'm ready. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja Mitrataj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Sean Falk and Wynn Tucker. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the LOE Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, 
organic yogurt, and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Paxworld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.